So this is Jim Marshall. Does anybody know who Jim Marshall is off the top of their head? Probably not. Kevin was my only guess that he might know. So Jim Marshall is a, is a football player, obviously, played for the Vikings. Uh, he did not make it to the Hall of Fame, but he got close. Uh, he played 20 years as a defensive lineman, which is a pretty long time uh, in that physical of a league. And uh, most of those years he was with the Vikings. The Vikings have retired his number. And in a lot of ways, uh, he was a great player, but he was unfortunately defined by his worst moment. And I'm going to share with you his worst moment. We have video of it. All you need to know, you don't need to understand much about the game of football. You don't need to hear the audio. All you need to know is that his team is in white and that his team is going from the right of the screen to the left of the screen. Okay? And here's his play. Poor Jim Marshall is to this day known as Wrong Way Marshall, okay? His nickname is Jim Wrong Way Marshall because he famously scooped the ball up and ran to the wrong end zone. Uh, I think we can appreciate that sense of losing your direction or losing where you're going, right? Have you ever got home from the store and realized you didn't buy the one thing that you went to the store for, right? Or you walk into the room, you flick on the lights, and you go, I've got no idea why I came in here. Um, maybe uh, you've called someone, and they go, hey, what's up? And you're like, not much. What do you want? Uh, I don't know what I want, right? These are all kind of moments where we turn into wrong way, Marshall, and we are so caught up in everything else that's going on that we literally are just running in the wrong direction. You just lose your sense of navigation. Um, this happens with us a lot with kids. We go to do thing A, and by the time we deal with B, C, D, E, and F that they ask us for on the way to A, can't even remember what A was, right? And this sense of lost direction, that feeling when you get back from the store and you have nothing that you actually needed, it can come into our lives in lots of places. Um, I mean, it's silly when we do something like that. We usually laugh at ourselves. But maybe you've gotten midway through a degree or you've gotten midway through a career. Or uh, honestly, for our church, some of us are starting to get to midways of life, right? And we go, what am I doing? How did I get here? Why am I doing this? Why do I care about this? There's nothing as frustrating. Uh, for those of you still in college, I'm sure this won't happen to you. But for those of us that have been through the college experience, to get done and to have a degree and to get in the field and realize, I kind of hate the thing that I spent four years of my life preparing for, right? And we can just get lost in our direction. Um, as we work uh, as a church, one of the things that we are doing this, this, this month is to kind of like reformat where are we at. Okay, what do we do? What do we do well? How do we better you know, utilize our energy? All that kind of stuff. And I wanted to spend time in our sermon over the next few weeks to talk about this idea of reorienting yourself, making sure you're running the right direction, making sure that the, the trees are not getting in the way of the forest, so to speak. And so I want to spend some time looking at sort of the big story of Scripture. The thing that's really helpful for us as we talk about sort of finding the plot of our lives and the direction of our lives is that we have the Bible and that God gave us this book that is a story. I know some of you 
Don't find it very story-like because you pick it up and it's all not in the right order and the chronology is really goofy and there's different kinds of literature and it frustrates you. But ultimately, if we learn how to navigate that a little bit, it is a story. It is a chronological series of events. Um, there are other holy books in the world that you read and they're not like that. You pick them up and they're sort of meditations or doctrines or spiritual teachings but they're all kind of about how to live and they're super practical and they never actually give a narrative. But scripture is not that way. Scripture tells us a story. And it's helpful in order to not turn into wrong way Jim Marshall to kind of orient to what that story is, where that story began, how that story has progressed and where that story is going. <coughs> Excuse me. Because when we do that, that then gives us better shape to our lives. And as we sit and we say, who are we as a church? Where are we going as a church? How do we continue to grow as a church? We ask those questions far better in the context of knowing this big story of Scripture than just sort of wandering around in various ideas and jumping from here to there. So for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about this. And I'm going to borrow a model from a theologian named N.T. Wright. If you read at all, uh, you maybe have read of him as Tom Wright. When he's trying to be very easy to get along with, he's Tom. And when he's being scholarly, he's N.T. But uh, Wright is an Anglican bishop. He uh, is also a professor, I believe, at uh, Oxford, one of those English places. I'm pretty sure it's Oxford. Uh, he's, a, he's a foremost historian in the early church and the New Testament. Uh, but he also writes a lot of books for the church. And Wright, uh, when talking about Scripture talks about scripture as, a, as the five acts of a play. Now, I'm going to kind of bury the reason why I like his five acts until the fifth sermon. So if you really want to know well, why five acts of a play, you've got to come back four weeks from now. Okay, but the five acts of the play, I think, is a really helpful way to talk about scripture and where scripture is going. And the five acts that NT uh, offers are uh, in this graphic that I've created for Facebook, right, for our sermon series. And the five acts are this. Creation, the fall, Israel, Jesus, and the church. Roughly, that is the way that he says history is broken down. And so what we're going to do is for the next five weeks, we're going to do these five lessons. Uh, we're going to start with creation today. We'll talk about the fall next week. We'll talk about Israel the week after, Jesus the week after that, and then the church. And how that story places you in a certain trajectory. It begins in a certain place and it ends in a certain place. And that's important because as we try to place ourselves, we have to live within that story, right? You, you can't hear the story of Cinderella, and she gets her dress, and she gets the chariot and the horses, and she goes to the ball, and then a Vietnam soldier comes out and starts shooting people, right? You're like, oh, that's a different story. And in the same way, if we don't understand the story of Scripture, it's easy for us to get lost about where we're going and just do random things. So we're going to try to understand the arc. As we do that, there's three questions we're going to ask each week. What is or what are the main characters of this story, or this part of the story? Uh, what is the world like in this story? And what is the role of humanity in this story? And hopefully all these things will orient us as we go on. All right, now that I'm done with that page-long intro, we will get to the actual sermon for this week. And we're going to talk about uh, creation as our story today, starting in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. 
Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we get a very traditional opening to the story. This could be almost like once upon a time, right? In the beginning, when this all started, this is what happened. And it's really easy. I'm very, uh, maybe you remember we studied Revelation last winter. We talked about how you can miss the most important big things when you get caught up in the little things. I always feel like Genesis 1 is one of those passages. This has become a passage where people slog in and fight debates and talk about science and creation and evolution and, you know, dinosaurs on arcs and all this kinds of stuff, right? And I just think that a lot of that is just a total missing of the story. The very first verse is significant. And it may sound like a weird thing to focus on because it seems so simple, but it's important. The author tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The author wants us to stop and to realize that everything exists, exists because God desired for it to exist. This is the big point, okay? This is the point that we teach our kids in Sunday school, and we'd probably do good to just keep repeating to adult school too, right? The idea that God is at the center of the story and that God desires and wills for creation to exist, so when we ask that question of who's at the center of this story, Genesis 1 is a story about a God, about a God who chooses to create stuff. And it's really kind of interesting. Theologians also get into this conversation of uh, this fancy f f uh, Latin phrase, creation ex nihilo, right? This idea that God created out of nothing. Um, that's not what Genesis 1 says, okay? I, Ultimately, I believe that God created something out of nothing way, way, way early. But that's actually before this passage. It's very clear here when this starts. God creates the heaven and earth. It says, in the beginning, it was formed. There was, there was, it was a void. It was this mess of waters and chaos and junk. And the Spirit of the Lord hovered over it. When we start the story, there's already something there. And the story is not so much about God creating something out of nothing as God filling up an empty space a meaningless space. And again, all of this just points to his desire to create something that's full and rich and good. All right, we're going to keep going. Uh, verse 20. Uh, you can read all the different days of creation. I've skipped down here to day five. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing, uh, with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So he blessed it and said, be fruitful and increase in number. And fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And so it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Uh, this may sound weird to you, but when you look at this text carefully, and you read it particularly from an ancient world view, this is far less about art and way more about organization, okay? 
Those of you who are organization freaks, you will love this. The creation story is not about a painter who gets in front of a canvas and just starts making something gorgeous. It is a man who comes to his drawer that is full of messy stuff, and he puts in a plastic organizer and starts putting them in the proper spots. Okay? That may sound silly, but listen. What's the phrase I said 18 times when I read, right? According to its kind. There is this obsession in this passage with organization, that everything fits in its right place, that God took this mess of the world and he slowly moves it from side to side. He puts this part here and this part here. It's like a big episode of Clean House, okay? And that may sound bizarre to us because we've often talked in our theological lens about taking, creating something from nothing. But what God really is doing mostly here is organizing and placing. And that makes sense if you're an ancient person. Uh, we tend to forget this. We live in a world that is relatively unaffected by anything, right? We had a, uh, like a big nor'easter, snow hurricane, bomb cyclone, whatever they called it, 10 days ago, right? And what did we do? We all sat inside our house and had a hot cocoa or maybe a beer, watched TV, and caught up on our Netflix, right? And then our plows came through and cleaned the roads, and within 12, uh, 24 to 36 hours later, we were all back on the road and enjoying ourselves and going over to Applebee's, right? We had a huge meteorological event, and for most of us, it caused zero pain and suffering. There are places in the world where weather does a whole lot more than that, right? Where torrential downpours make a difference. Where, um, I mean, you think about it. When we have a drought, we go, oh, it's a drought. My petunias are dying, right? But you still go to the grocery store and you pick up whatever you need to eat. There are places in the world where when you have a drought, people die because there's no food to eat. See, predict predictability and organization is so important if you're an ancient person or you're a poor person or you're living with limited resources and technology because the, the chaos is what kills you, right? These are people that if they traveled any amount of distance, you seriously hugged your loved ones because you never know if they're going to get caught by a mountain lion or something. Mountain lion is probably the wrong animal for this part of the world, but you know what I mean, right? There's just so much less predictability in the world before the technology we have. And so even things like storms, lightning, darkness, night used to be a big problem. Nowadays, we do everything in the night that we used to do in the daytime, right? Because we have lights and we have cars and all these kinds of things. For ancient people, predictability was great. San Diego weather would be a gift from God because your house is never going to be sent away in a flood. You're never going to have a child who freezes to death because it got suddenly cold. You're never going to lose your crops because of an infestation of bugs or whatever. Just consistency and organization and order makes the world a beautiful place. And so the author describes God as one who brings order that helps your life not get messed up by the chaos. Um, maybe this is, this is easy to forget sometimes. This thing is like really wonderfully organized. Uh, the six days of creation are three days of creating habitats and three days of filling habitats, okay? The first day, God creates light and dark. And then on the fourth day, he populates the light and the dark with the sun and the moon. Now, how do you have light and dark without the sun and the moon? This should be our first 
point that God is not worried about physics here or astro uh, astronomy. He's really getting at something else. But he has light and dark, and then he fills it with the sun and the moon. Then the second day, he creates sky and water. And then on the fifth day, he fills those with fish and birds. On the third day, he creates land and sea. And then on the sixth day, he fills those with fish or with, with, with uh, animals that walk on the ground, right, to populate that land. This is a very organized way of talking. And notice that it's often divided, right? It's not God said, let there be land, and land appeared. It's that God tells the seas, other places in the psalm says, you may go no further. This is how far you may go and you cannot. That he sort of pulls the land out and he pulls it to the side. And he takes, he builds this dome over the water, right? All this to say, this is an image of a God that creates an organized world. And he doesn't just do it because he likes the container store. He does it because when we have an organized world, it brings us um, fruitfulness. It brings us goodness. It brings us life. It keeps us safe from all the chaos and the other things that may happen in the world. And so God creates this beautiful place for us to live and to thrive. And then he creates us. Then God said, let us make uh, mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animal, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Ultimately, God finishes his creation by creating humanity, and it says that he creates them in the image of God. Okay, this is a really important verse. Uh, when we talk about the Bible, uh, anytime something's repeated, it's important. Remember, you're not putting these things on a printing press. There's no Xerox machines. It's not easy to make a copy of something. And often the, 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 um, the scroll that you would write on would limit how, what you wrote. You filled it until there was no more space, and then your story was done. So they're always economical on space. So if you see something repeated, it's hugely important. And the author says, God created them in his image, in his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is, okay, this is a big sign that says, hey, stupid, this is important, okay? If you try to read past this, you're not paying any attention. And it's interesting that there's, um, the gender thing there is fascinating. The author wanted to make sure that we realize the image of God is both male and female, right? But then there's this bigger idea that just we're all created with this sort of inherent value, this inherent dignity. Um, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of debate by theologians about what the image of God really means. But I think at the root, there's this idea that human beings are important and valuable and, and they're different because they have God's image. 
they represent God. Um, some people will talk about this as using the language of like even an icon or an idol, right? That the idol is the image of a God and that when they would go to the temples, it would be a representation. And God says, I don't do that. My representation are the people that serve me. And what's interesting is that this is not just a blessing to have the image of God. It is not just a privilege, but there's also a responsibility. God says, I want you to subdue the earth, right? I want you to rule over it. And there's, you know, this has been used historically for people to be like, yes, let's subjugate the earth and cut down the trees and kill all the animals. That's not exactly what God's going for. Within the logic of the passage, what you see is that God has created order. He has fought back the chaos. And now he is inviting us to continue that work with him. To help make the world a safe place, a beautiful place, a place where people can live and can thrive and cannot live and don't have to be in fear all the time. And so we get called into that story to work alongside him. Um, I want you also to see that there's, there's moral language over all of this. Light and dark, like, right, Star Wars doesn't create this. There's a light side, there's a dark side, right? There's good and there's evil in the world. And there's this idea that God is fighting back the evil. He's fighting back the chaos. Maybe you'll remember that uh, here we start with these formless waters and then God divides the land from the water and kind of holds the water back. Then you get to the book of Revelation and John says, I saw, behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth and there was no longer any sea. And what does that mean? It means that the sea, the water, the chaos has been removed. It's been taken away. There's no longer anything to be afraid of because that work that God began in creation has now gone to the point where he has fully contained the evil and the chaos that's around us. So what does all this stuff mean? We said we'd ask three questions. Um, the first question, who's the main character here? It's God. God is at the center of the creation story, and his will and his desire is what makes the universe what it is. Uh, what is the world like? It's designed in this story to be good, to be beautiful, to be organized, to be safe, to provide for thriving, to be filled, right? There's all this language of be fruitful and multiply. Take the empty earth and fill it with stuff. Um, that's really interesting. And all of that is God's kind of desire for this creation as he makes it. And then what role does humanity play? At the very beginning here, humans are supposed to be partners with God in creating and maintaining that goodness, right? So God gets the ball rolling, and then he says, I want you to join with me to help the world continue to be this good, beautiful, organized, safe place, but to make it even better and even more organized and safe and good and thriving. And that that is what we're called into. And that sets the trajectory for the story as we know it. Um, This is obviously the first of five lessons. And so this is just, when we see our story, this is how the story is set up, right? This is a movie. This is the first 10 or 15 minutes where it explains to us who the characters are and what they're meant for. Next week, obviously, the plot is going to get messed up and there's going to be problems. There's going to be conflict that comes into it. But it is always helpful to come back to this original purpose that God created us because he wanted to and he wanted us to have a good experience. Um, I don't have a ton of application for that this week, 
Obviously, as Preston mentioned, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day, and I think it's very helpful to have um, a reminder that all people have dignity and beauty and value, no matter what kind of country they come from, no matter what kind of language they speak, no matter what, uh, frankly, even what religion they believe in, they are still image bearers of God, and they deserve respect and love. That's an obvious application. But more so, as we go through all of this, as we look at what we're doing as a church, we have to realize that our vocation as a church and as individuals is grounded in this act of creation. That God created a beautiful world devoid of death and chaos so that we could work with him uh, in this work of creating order and peace and beauty and goodness. All right. Uh, Q&A. What questions do you have? about this passage or about what we talked about today. Yeah. And there is this sense that God is constantly inviting collaboration, right? Because, you know, we often talk, we do, we talk about it, and, and I know why the artist people want to talk about God as an artist, and I believe God is an artist, right? But they often talk about the story as like this blank slate, and God puts everything there. But there is this sense in the story that humans and the earth contribute to this process, right? Even the idea of uh be fruitful and multiply. God's saying, all right, I created, you know, in this story, I created two of you, but I want there to be lots of you. I didn't create millions of you. I created two, and I'll let you get going on the millions, right? Like, you know, there's this idea that he's investing in us. In the, um, the second kind of half of the second version of the story in Genesis 2, we then see uh, Adam naming the animals, right? Like, God created them, but then Adam's job is to sort of organize them, to say, well, we're going to call this one this, and we're going to call this one that. And, you know, Adam's being called into that process. 